Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, November 17th, 2019, we conclude our series titled Genesis in the Beginning. Today's sermon, A Changed Heart, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 through 21. Enjoy. This past Sunday, As Thomas led us through, we looked at the reconciliation and and forgiveness that Joseph and his family experienced. And we came to the conclusion that God really is good. In each and every circumstance, he is good. He is able to take bad and make something good come out of it. You can certainly see that in his life. The question is, do you believe that? Do you believe God is good. Because if you do, it will change you. Change Joseph's life. And it'll change ours. It'll change the way you think. It'll change the way you respond to people. It'll change how you live. I mean, that is exactly what the scriptures teach us. And Paul, the, the apostle, wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, if any man is in Christ... He's a new creation. The old things pass away. Behold, new things come. Which means you'll think differently. You will respond differently. Because the old things will pass away, the new will come. Now the cool thing is when you get to the end of Genesis here in chapter 50, we get a chance to see that. So much of the story of Genesis is so messed up and dysfunctional. I mean, sometimes from week to week, as you looked at some of the characters in the scriptures, you begin to wonder, how really weird and odd are they that they would do these things? And we'll come back to that in a minute, why actually some of those things happened. But then you get to Joseph's life and you get a chance to see what a changed heart and a changed mind really look like, a heart that has been changed by God. Joseph is an incredibly important character here. I mean, I don't know if you realize this or not, but out of the 50 chapters in Genesis, 13 of them are attached to him. 13. That's way more than any other character in the scriptures. And if you think about it, if you think about the names that are involved in the book of Genesis, how many really important and significant people fit into that whole thing? Adam? Noah, Abraham, Jacob. Joseph here is the son of Jacob. His mother is Rachel. She was Jacob's favorite. Jacob is both of their favorites. The problem here, though, is is that early in his life, he was just not very wise. God had given him some visions and some dreams, and he takes great pleasure in sharing those visions and dreams with his brothers. Those dreams were that they would all bow down to him and honor him. Now that created hatred within them because they look at him as he's arrogant and unwise and they end up turning on him, plotting on him, plotting him to kill him. In fact, they take him at one point and they throw him at the bottom of a well and they're just gonna leave him there. But then all of a sudden they see some Midianite travelers coming along And they go, hmm, might as well make a profit out of this. So they yank him out of there. They sell him to the Midianites and they just think, hmm, that was easy. He gets taken to Egypt and sold 
to an Egyptian there in slavery and you see one of the first times that human trafficking is actually mentioned in the scriptures. While he's there though, he begins to climb the ladder. He succeeds. But because of some advances by his boss's wife that get rejected, she cries foul and he ends up throwing into prison. I mean, it's hard to even imagine how that all happens. The wrong that has been done to this guy. But God uses him there and ultimately he will be called on to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. He talks about a famine that is coming that's going to be not just a famine in Egypt but a famine that would be at at the very least regionally. Probably even way more than that. The famine would be so so severe here that uh, he would literally see this, this famine stretch out and make it difficult for anybody to live. So not just the people in Egypt were suffering at this point, but people around the world to the point that Jacob, his father, actually would send the brothers down to Egypt to get food so that they could survive. Now that would mean, in this case here, that they would have to go before their brother Joseph, but they don't recognize him. Now, in one sense, they don't recognize him probably because this has been many years. But in another sense, it's also true that since the customs and, and the look and everything would be completely different, I mean, the average you know, Hebrew would have worn some type of probably headdress and would have you know, had their hair growing normally and, and that sort of thing. But in Egypt, it was very common to have your head completely shaved and it was just the look of the land and this is what guys did and it's very possible he could have had some type of a, a paint on or you know something like that and and on top of that he would have gone by a different name he certainly would not have risen to the to the realm of sort of the secretary of state using a Hebrew name they would have given him a different name and so he would go by this and he doesn't look the same he doesn't carry himself the same way he has attendants around him and all this thing and so they come before him in search of food And humanly speaking, Joseph has positioned himself perfectly to get even. Perfectly. They are basically begging for food. There's only one problem here. This is not the same old Joseph. This is a changed man. This is a man who has experienced God's goodness in his life and he has come to the realization that there is more to my life than just the things that maybe I can look at and see that were negative. Joseph's story here is not just the last story in Genesis. It is the resolution of the Genesis problem. Here you see true forgiveness. You see unmerited favor that he extends out to his brothers and his family. And it all comes because he gets a picture of a God who has more for his life than he could have ever dreamed himself. And he trusts. God is gonna use him to lead not only Egypt, but also Israel through a time of fathom or famine to ultimately get to the place where they will receive the promises. Now in chapter 49, Jacob 
Joseph's father dies, and the brothers at this point think, you know, maybe Joseph is simply waiting for the old man to sort of, you know, give up the ghost, and now that he's gone and he won't be disappointed, he's gonna come after us, and he's gonna deal really harshly with us. In fact, they write him a letter in chapter 50. Look at what he says in verse 15. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. In fact, they even recognized the fact that they had done evil. Verse 16, and so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died, saying to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. That's such a powerful picture there in verse 17 that Joseph who has been through all of this and risen to the place that he's at stops and verse 17 says he weeps it was interesting because as I was studying and preparing for this Calvin says that the reason why he cried is because he knows they're lying he knows they're afraid and that realization is is that reconciliation has not happened that they are doing all of this because they're in fear. They don't trust him. And so when you get to verses 19, 20, and 21, which is where we're going today, you, you, you see that Joseph now has an opportunity to go out and fix and make it very clear here that they are reconciled, that they can be reconciled to him because he trusts in the goodness of God. And so this morning as we close out the book, this is actually an amazing ending to the book, Joseph will show us what it means to grow up and to mature spiritually. He will show us a changed heart. In fact, we'll get a chance to three, see three marks of a changed heart here. Now the first thing, the first mark you see here is in verse 19, chapter 50 here. Listen to what it says. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? So the first mark of a changed heart here is, first of all, is that we let God be God. We let God be God. Verse 19 here is a rhetorical question. Of course he's not God. But what he's saying here is, what Joseph is getting to is, I'm not the judge. You know what's interesting is, I... I, I, so many different people that I would see for a, a counseling appointment or something like that, it's not that people struggle with Christianity intellectually, and it's not that they struggle with the miraculous. The most of the people that struggle with Christianity actually struggle with the moral. Their, their issue is this. Well, if God is good, why did he let that happen? It's an interesting spot. If God is good, why would he let that happen? Hmm. Let me go back for a second here. You know, whether we realize it or not, putting God on trial is a dangerous place to be. Joseph here, um, he refuses to play God. His statement to his brothers who were in fear is very, very clear. Am I in the place of God? Am I the judge? 
Am I the one that decides right and wrong? Am I any better than you? You know, when we play God, we put God so very often on trial, we place ourselves morally in a position where we feel like we're almost even with God or even better than God, that God somehow has to answer our questions about life. You know when this began? In the very beginning. Keep your finger here in Genesis 50 and go back to Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve here are in the garden and God gives them free reign in the garden. Go do everything you want to do. Enjoy it. I mean, just max it out. Have a blast. One thing I'm going to tell you I don't want you to do. Just don't go to the one tree that is exactly in the middle of the garden and don't eat its fruit. But you can do everything else. Now pick it up in Genesis chapter 3 here. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now stop, look up just for a second. I think that's a really important statement here. Because that tells you that Satan knows exactly how to get to us. He will get to us by appealing to the idea, well, maybe God's not good. Maybe you're as good as God. Maybe you could judge this better than he could. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither, neither shall you touch it. He never said that, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is he saying there when the serpent says, you know, actually, if you eat of that, you'll just be like God. What is he saying? What he's saying is, if someone here comes along we begin to think that we're the moral authority. We begin to think that we have the right to choose what is right and wrong. The result is we end up putting ourselves in God's place. I mean, if there ever was somebody too that was in line to do this, it would have been Joseph. I mean, this is a young man who's been done wrong. But instead of seeing God as abandoning him, he gets a perspective on why God let it happen. And he refuses to put himself in God's place or as a judge over God. That is the first sign of a changed heart. To not put ourselves on par with God. Do not allow ourselves to sit in judgment of God. I mean, if we're honest, this is a spiritual battle that almost every single one of us fall into at times. I mean, this has happened from the very beginning of time. This is one of the main issues that I see believers falling into today is somehow to buy the lie of Satan that it's okay for me to decide what is ultimately right and what is ultimately wrong. You know, it's interesting. I, I was looking back and as I was preparing for this whole thing, I started thinking about something as I was getting ready to do some stuff for a wedding. And in 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul writes and he gives us the love chapter, he says something in the middle of the love chapter that is, doesn't almost seem to fit with the love chapter. He says, right now, 
we look at life like looking in a mirror that's been darkened. In other words, right now, life doesn't completely make sense. You don't get to see every single thing about it. You only get to see a portion of it all. You know why that is? Because if I could see every single thing that there was, I would turn myself into the judge. If I could see everything that there ever was, I wouldn't need faith. And yet the one thing that God asks me to do is, would you trust me? I'm asking you to trust me. So many times people come along and they think, well, I can see it as good as God and yet we only have one perspective on life. Do you realize God can see it from every possible dimension there is, the things that we can't see? So people will come along and they'll say, well, I'm not gonna follow God because I don't know if I could trust him or I'm not gonna follow God because I don't know if he's all that good and we demand that God somehow show up and answer all of our questions. Like that would be so convenient. Well, God, I got a question about this and if you don't show up right now, I'm not gonna believe. Like we hold ourselves hostage to God. You do it my way or I don't believe. I got news for you. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean this to be rude, but God's not gonna do it that way. You see, that's one of the reasons why this book is so big because I actually get a chance to go through this book and I get a chance to see the character of God. Do I actually believe that the God of this book is good? Because I do. If I can believe in his character, then when he calls upon me to trust him in a difficult moment, one of those moments like Paul says that's just sort of darkened right now and I don't get a complete picture, that's one of the moments where I stop and I have to have faith. So many people, though, they, they put themselves into a spot where they place themselves as a higher moral authority than God. Joseph refuses to do that. Verse 19, he says, I am not God. I am not the moral authority that you should fear me. And what Joseph has done is he sort of left the writing of wrongs, that role, he's left it to God. He leaves justice in God's hands. And that's important because we're not supposed to be about justice. We're supposed to be about forgiveness. And don't mistake that, by the way, for trust. When someone has wronged us, we are called to forgive. That doesn't mean God has called you to trust. There's a big difference here in the two. Now, why is it important that we leave moral authority to God? Well, there's two reasons I can think of off the top of my head. One comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. It says some powerful things here. Romans 12 says this. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If they are thirsty, give him drink. Uh, for by so doing you will heap hot coals on their head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Did you catch that powerful line in the middle there? The reason why I do not assume the moral authority or God's position is because God says, vengeance is mine. What God is in fact saying is, don't take my role. I've given you a role. Forgive. Only God has the right to set in judgment. 
You understand what he's saying here? If I usurp God's position or his authority, I am putting myself at the same level as God or higher. We are told, this is the second thing, is that we're told as forgiven followers of Christ that we are to forgive. Ephesians chapter four, verse 32, powerful words. says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God and Christ Jesus has forgiven you. That's our assignment. The assignment is don't get even. Forgive like I forgave you. Remember how he forgave us? You didn't deserve it, but he did. The fact that Joseph knows that, the fact that Joseph knows who he is, but he also knows who he is not. I am not on the level of God. Am I in God's place? He says, no, I'm not. And so he refuses to do that. That speaks of a changed heart. Now the second sign and I'm gonna have to go faster. The second sign of a changed heart here comes from verse 20, and that is we see a larger purpose for our lives. Verse 20, back in chapter 50, says this, for as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph has figured out that if God is going to use him, this is very important that you catch this, it is probably, his life is probably not gonna look like he thinks it would look. It's going to look different. You see, when you and I reach a place where we love God and we trust him and we willingly say, God, whatever it is you want, our priorities and perspective will change every time. Let me give you a perfect example of this. Grant and Christiane Walsher in service this morning, um, love for the Lord, love for the lost, love to share the gospel with people, love to to be about the the whole idea of redemption and everything like that. But you know what? I don't think they ever dreamed for a moment that God would send them to the slums in India to to preach the gospel and to rescue women that were enslaved into the the slave trade of, of prostitution. But God dreamed about that. And all of a sudden, when we turn ourselves over to the Lord, God changes what's on our heart. Mike and Lori Floyd used to love to share the gospel. I can remember they were in my youth group. They used to love to share the gospel with everybody. I, I always kind of knew they would be in the ministry someplace. And I, and, you know, I, didn't, I knew they'd like to, to give out the gospel, but I didn't know what that would all mean for them. And all of a sudden, they decided that God wanted them in church planting. But he never told them before that that the church planting they would be doing would be in eastern Laos, to an unreached people group, but they went. Because you see, there comes a time in our life, just like Joseph here, where we see something larger. We see a larger purpose for our lives than what we might have assumed as we were just growing up normally in life. Joseph has that perspective that God wants more from him. He sees that the famine is going to be severe that is coming and that God has positioned him into a spot to save not only his family, but the entire nation of Israel and the entire nation of Egypt, all of this. The perspective here that he gets is so amazing. It's not like he doesn't know that there's been wrong done to him through this whole thing. I mean, in verse 20, he says, for as for you, you meant evil against me. You meant to hurt me. You meant for it to be wrong. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't let their evil that they had done define him. 
Because his next line, I mean, is so clear, but God meant it for good. In other words, now God's plan will define him, not the evil that they had done to him. Ultimately, you know, you're gonna get a chance to choose. Which perspective will be this perspective that drives you? Will it be a wounded perspective or will it be a, a one that will just blow your mind because God has something in it that you weren't ready for? The third sign of a changed life is in, you see it in verse 21 here, is that love is more than just mere words. Look what he says. Then he stops and he says, do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He expresses his love in word and deed. He responds to their mistreatment of him with forgiveness and affection. You know, that's a pretty biblical way of going about things, wouldn't you say? James, in James chapter one, you know, makes this statement. He talks about the fact that words without deeds are really shallow. You know, it's, it's one thing to say, oh, those poor people, and I'll pray for them. And then it's another thing completely to step forward and go, what do I do? It's clear here that once that we see God as good, we begin to change and we act upon that change. That's what you see in Joseph's life. Joseph here is loving his enemies like we read in Romans chapter 12. How is that possible? How do you love somebody in this case that sold you, they were gonna kill you and then they sell you into slavery and now they want you to bless them? I don't care what civic group you join, no one's got a cure for that one except Jesus. A complete change of heart. He doesn't just forgive them, he doesn't just let them off the hook, he blesses them. He takes care of them. That's an amazing thing that happens here. You know what's so interesting as we come to the end of this study, you know, if I look at the last five books of, or the first five books, excuse me, of the Old Testament, it's called the Pentateuch. You take Genesis, and Genesis is an amazing example of what happens when mankind is left on his own without direction. You get lost. And then all of a sudden, they come to this place in Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus and God gives them the law in, in Exodus and Leviticus and now they've got the law before them and they go hog wild on the law. I mean, they, they, everything, they, they're all about the law to the point that they become legalistic and, and all of a sudden now they have a new problem. On one side they had the problem of license and now they've got this problem of legalism and what you learn out of the whole thing is that either way, man apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ is lost whether you're given direction or you're not given direction. They're lost, except for the changing power of God, the power that changed Joseph's life, that transformed him. See, the story here presents two worldviews, one that trusts in God, the other one that, that doesn't. The marks here are simple. Are we going to let God be God? Or am I gonna continue on in this wrestling match because I wanna be my own sovereign? And will I see a larger purpose for my life? 
Or is my life what's dictated to me on TV that I should be all about comfort and safety and fun and wealth and that's what life should be all about? Because that's not the life that Joseph chose. And ultimately, when our change happens, then love will become more than simply mere words. The question is, is that you? Is that you? Because I would encourage you that if you were to said early on when I asked, do you really believe God is good? Because if you do believe God is good, you should change. If you have trusted God, there should be a change within you. You're going to let him be God. Does that mean you're going to have the answer for everything right now? It does not mean that. In the office, we talk a lot about mystery. Why? I don't know. There are places that we simply stop and go, I don't know. God doesn't give us an answer for that. I live by faith. I trust. The question is, do you believe that? Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that this morning that we could be focused in on you. That we would see, Lord, um, how good you are. We could see how high and wonderful and perfect and holy you are. And we're not any of those things, God. We're just people. And unfortunately, God, too many of us stop and want to place ourselves on the same level as you and we're not. And we will never know you, we'll never find you if that's true. So Father, I ask that now that you would speak to our hearts, you would call us to something more, something better, a simple trust in you, a love for you that will translate into lives that will seek a greater purpose for our lives than just the circumstances of what people around us have and that we'll work it out practically in everything that we say and do. Nobody's looking around for a second. Would you do me a favor? If God is calling you to either trust in him or to come back to him, I want you to know that when this service ends, there will be a group of people that will be down here in the front. They would absolutely love to talk and and pray with you. We want to give you that opportunity. Someone would love to help you reach the place where you can trust again. Father, move in our hearts to be obedient to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't care what it is, in every single meeting, there will be people who see God above them and will honor him, trust him, say you do what you want, God. And in the same meeting, there will be people that see no one above them and they trust themselves. If you're that first one, if you honor God, I want to encourage you, it's time to declare it this week in front of a lost world that's looking for hope. Declare your trust to them. If you're the other side of it, if you only trust in you, I would encourage you, what would it hurt you to simply look into Jesus? To see what he's done to see what he can do. I'd encourage you, 
Start pursuing, if God is moving in your heart, a walk with him. Thank you. God bless you. Love you all.